If you have your Bibles, let's go to Acts 3, please. Acts 3. Now, I'm warning you, it's never a good sign when the pastor is getting to preach, says, I'm warning you to start with, right? It's never a good sign. I feel like I have a lot of content in a short time, so we're going to do our best here, okay? And so much that I was working on the content because this chapter was just so, so impressive to me as I was studying it. Um, and I knew it was coming. I've taught through the book before, and I just really enjoyed this, uh, this chapter. But um, I, I was trying to think of a good, cool title for the sermon. So I just came up with learning lessons from the early church. So that, that tells you that I was focusing more on, on okay, w- w- how are we going to frame this thing uh, than, than, than trying to come up with a cool title. So I failed in the title category today, but hopefully the content of the text and the dis- discussion will be helpful to you. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read through the text, okay? And let me just encourage you that uh, whenever the Scriptures are read, uh, particularly if you're in a setting like this and the Scriptures are read, uh, let me just remind you that you have a responsibility as well uh, to, to kind of engage your mind and think through it, use your imagination, and, and, and try, to, try to, to, to understand what was happening in there. So I, I try to read with expression. I try to point out things. And as I'm reading, I'm going to pause in between verses and kind of make some comments and things like that. But, but that's just a helpful reminder, though, that whenever you read the Scriptures, uh, don't just read it to read the next word. Try to immerse yourself wherever you're at in the Scriptures. You'll get so much more out of it. There will be so much more details that will pop up, and it will be really helpful to you. So, so in a minute, I'm just going to pray and ask God's blessing. I'm going to read through the text, and then we'll just walk through our sermon today, and we'll see, we'll see what the Lord does. Let's pray. Father, I want to pause now because uh, anytime we uh, talk about your Word, we, we want to understand and acknowledge that... Uh, we need your Spirit's help. And, you know, this is one of the themes that we're talking about in the book so far is the, the Holy Spirit's role uh, in, in this early church and in our church and our lives today. And so uh, I pray that, that we, would, we would see your Spirit guide us right now. I, I need your guidance as I'm speaking. I, um, there's a lot of thoughts and, and going in a lot of different ways. I find myself uh, uh, in my mind this morning just kind of racing and going in a million different directions for some reason. And so I just pray that I'd be able to communicate in a way that's helpful, that is accurate to this text, that is uh, honoring to you. And at the end of this day, I, I, I just pray that you would receive glory and honor. So uh, whatever, whatever happens now, we're just dependent on your spirit. And we're looking forward to learning from this text. And I'm so grateful that Dr. Luke included it in, in his book, and we can learn from it. So Lord, we love you, and uh, we're asking for your blessing. In Christ's name, amen. So hopefully you're in Acts 3. Here's the text, and I'm just going to read it and just go along. Just, it says, Now Peter and John, verse 1, they were going up to the temple at the ninth, or at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That's about 3 in the afternoon, just so you know. The way the Jewish calendar worked, it started at 6 o'clock in the morning. And so, so you, here they're going up there, and you have to just, uh, first of all, understand something here, that the, the city must have been just on fire, just a buzz. Because, I mean, think about what happened in the last two months, okay? In the last two months, 
We've seen Jesus killed. We've seen him resurrected. He, we've seen him ascend now. And, and we, we've seen this Pentecost event that just happened in chapter 2. We've seen a, a tremendous sermon by Peter here. And so the, this is not a large place, okay? Remember, this is, don't think about getting lost in like New York City or something like this. This is, this is more of a, of a close-knit area. And so the people here would have been uh, still talking about the events of seven, eight weeks prior to this. And they would would have been uh, still kind of wondering about what had happened there and having this. And, and they would have recognized Peter and John as well, no doubt. Verse 2, and a lame man, he uh, uh, from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. And seeing James, Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And, and Peter directed his gaze at him as to John and said, look at us. Think about what Luke is doing here in this text here. He's, he's kind of doing a contrast here. And he points out a gate called Beautiful, right? And, and here's this gate that, and there's some discrepancy over which gate it was and things like that. But it was, it was obviously, it may not have been the one filled with gold and things like that. But it, it, it was a gate that was just absolutely beautiful and large. Some people think it was actually the Corinthian bronze gate. It doesn't really matter. All that matters is that this was a massive gate that was just absolutely known for his beauty. And here we have then Luke placing a beggar, telling the story of the beggar who would sit right there in front of this gate. I mean, this, and the beggar of those days, they, they, they were not the people that, that uh, they weren't going to win any awards for modeling, right? Okay, these are people, their clothes were, were, were just, you know, in shambles, and then they, and no doubt they, they smelled, and people would, would avoid them as they would go, up, go by. And, and notice that this man, he couldn't even, he couldn't even, even look up at James, I mean, excuse me, at Peter and John. Did you notice that? It says that, that they said they look at us. They, told, they had to tell him, look, at he's just with his head down. He's ashamed. He's been lame from birth. We know later on in next chapter, we're going to find out that he was over 40 years old. This guy was over 40 years old, and he had been lame from birth, and he had been being brought to this gate and, 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 and asking for money. You know how he was just, just weary of life and, and just beat down and tired and just lifting his hands up saying, Holmes. Alms. Now, he was trying to get money because people, when they go to the temple, this would be what they would do because they thought it would gain favor and things like that. that was one of the, the, the marks of good living is you would give alms to the poor. And so that's why he was there and he couldn't even, he couldn't even look up. He was so destitute. He was in such a bad spot. He couldn't even look up. But James, I keep saying James. If I say James from here, I just know I'm talking about John, okay? All right. John and Peter say this. They say, look at us. And he, this is the beggar, verse 5, he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter says, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. 
I mean, think about what happened. But this, this place, the place just erupted. There was people that they recognized this guy. He had been there year after year. He had been there decade after decade. And now all of a sudden he is leaping. He is jumping. He is praising God. This is like, I mean, you think about the people who, when their team hits the last uh, minute shot and, and, and wins the game at the buzzer and the place jumps to their feet and erupts and, and in applause and astonishment and amazement of what they just saw. Think about that. And this is what was going on in this context here. They, they, the people, they see what Peter has just done and it's, been an, and it's an amazing thing. Verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. So Peter says, okay, I got a crowd here. They need to hear a message. He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man his perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your fathers or, or did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoration of all things about what God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Let me just stop here for a second. What he's doing, he's building a case of the continuity with, that Jesus had with the faith of their fathers. That's why he said to Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. What he's doing there, he's tying it to this Jewish audience so they would recognize, he's saying, this Jesus is a, con is a continuation of what all of your forefathers, the people you say you're following, this is what they were pointing to. Now he's going to get into a discussion about a prophet here. He says in verse, um, in verse 22, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed those, these days. You are the sons of the prophets. And of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So it's a pretty straightforward text. We have a miracle, and then we have a speech or a sermon here that's being given here. 
And so the question I want to raise, I want to raise one question here, then we'll try to make some application of it. The question I want to raise is, why did Luke include this in his account here? We know this is volume two. Uh, He's written, writing to try to uh, give certainty to a man by the name of Theophilus about faith in Christ. And so we know that he's not including, we know that Luke is not including everything that Jesus did or everything the apostles did. So the question comes is, why did he include this part in his book. I, I think I'm just going to offer three plausible reasons. The, the first is to show that Jesus's ministry was authenticated and then carried on by the apostles and then the church through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's, we're going to talk about that here, about how this was an authentication of Jesus's ministry here, and this is a very important story to show that. A second plausible reason is to illustrate what transformed Christian living looked like in the first century. What did it look like for people to be transformed by Jesus Christ? He includes this in here because it gives us a good snapshot. And the third reason that I hope to just briefly discuss is to reinforce the importance of repentance and faith. This is a common theme that's going to come up, and it came up in the last chapter, and it came up again here. It's going to continue to come up in the book because it's an important theme that Luke wants his readers to understand, specifically Theophilus, but by extension, us as well. So I'm going to allow these three plausible reasons to frame our discussion here of Acts 3 over the next few minutes here. So let's look at this first one first. Um, But before I do that, here's one thing that if I was going to give you a summary statement, I'd kind of give it this as as a, a moving towards an application point at the end would be this, is that the church is called to confidently follow the apostles' examples of living transformed, repentant, and faithful lives that are empowered by the Spirit. That would be something that I think that we could kind of wrap everything up after our discussion. I hope that this statement here makes sense at the end of our discussion today, that the church is called to confidently follow the apostles' example to a faithful, transformed, repentant living empowered by the Spirit. Let's go back to that first reason that Jesus' ministry is authenticated. Let me explain this. Um, I, I mentioned at the end of chapter 3 how he begins this discussion of the prophet. I told you that there was a continuity there that uh, Luke was illustrating uh, through, or, or Peter was illustrating, Luke is recording, uh, to show these people here that, okay, this ministry that Jesus did, who died, who was killed and rose again, this is continuing on. When, when he died, it didn't end then, okay? And so he's using this miracle here of this lame man being healed to show that this is going to continue. That, that Jesus' work is going to continue. It wasn't just an aberration. It wasn't just a temporary thing. That just because he ascended, his transforming work is going to continue. And this idea of the prophets started back in, in Deuteronomy 18. And this is the, what uh, Peter's referring to here about Moses referring to a prophet that was going to come. And this was something that all the people looked back for. All the Jews of that day, they were looking for that fulfillment. They were waiting for the day when this prophet that Moses promised was going to come. You see, this is why in John chapter 6, after Jesus did that miracle of the loaves, remember when he fed those thousands of people there? You remember what happened? There's these he took small amounts of fish and small amounts of loaves, and, and he, there was a huge crowd gathered there, and, and he, he broke it, and he miraculously took just small amounts of food and fed thousands of people. But do you remember what the, the, the response of the crowd was after that? 
You see, John records, and this is verse 14 of John chapter 6, he records that, that they said, truly, this is the prophet that is to come. Okay, you see, they recognize that, wait a minute here, Moses promised a prophet here, and he was going to do great things. This must be the guy. Go in the next chapter, in chapter 7, again of John, the same thing happens. People, they look at Jesus, and they recognize him as this prophet. So the point is this, is that there is an authenticating work going on here. This is the reason why Luke is recording this. And the takeaway that you and I can get from this is that we can have confidence. This is the whole reason why he's included for Theophilus, he's saying, listen, if you, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're not, you're not putting something on, on shaky ground. This is not a, a, a risky investment here. This is a sure thing. And let me just show you why, because it's going to be authenticated and the apostles are going to continue to do these things. And so we see this. This is an example of the prophet. But remember in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, remember it says, Jesus told me you will be witnesses, right? Remember that in chapter 1 and verse 8? We looked at that a few weeks ago. He says, you'll be witnesses. This is what Peter says is happening here in verse 15. He says, to this we are witnesses, okay? And so this is just this unfolding plan. This is the reason why Luke is, in, is including this, to show us that Jesus' work is doing, going exactly the way he said. We can take great confidence in that because we live in uncertain times, right? And we live in times where we think that maybe things aren't in control and it feels like things are spiraling out of control, right? We're, we're changing plans all the time. Things have to be adjusted. We we don't know what the next weeks, months, or years look like. But yet, but yet, when we go back to texts like this, we can see it doesn't matter if we understand the events of this world or not. We know that God is unfolding his plan. And we know that this is an authenticating work. And so that Jesus is continuing his work. And he says, you will do this to the apostles. And here, Luke is illustrating this. The miracle is this example of signs and wonder. Back in chapter 2, Michael talked about this last week. In chapter 2, verse 44, it says that they were uh, doing things. Or this is verse 43 of chapter 2. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. That's what he said at the end of chapter 2. Chapter 3 is him illustrating one of these many wonders and signs that the apostles were doing to authenticate the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, this is something that the author of Hebrews talks about when he says this. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He says, it, it, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So we see this. The author of Hebrews here is saying, this is what happened. God was doing great works, but then the people that it was, uh, the Holy Spirit was using people at during times to do these things to show that his plan was unfolding. It's an authenticating work here. So, but this brings up a question that I think I must, I must raise and hopefully answer because maybe you're thinking about this. So we got these miracles. We're told that this is an authenticating work. This is exciting, Right? But what about today? I mean, wouldn't it be nice today? I mean, wouldn't it be great if, if, if I could say, okay, you know, we're going to have a healing service here, right? And wouldn't it be wonderful instead of me praying for people in the congregation, if I said, well, if you just come here, I'll heal you. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Why don't we get this today? Well, why, did, why, why was this then, but 
it's not today. So the question is, should we ex- expect miraculous healings today? So my answer to that is yes and no. <laughs> yes, in the sense that God can do anything, and God does heal people. God does things that confound doctors all the time. And we have no uh, way to explain it scientifically a lot of times. God just does things. So yes, on one hand, we should pray for healing and things like that. But should I take on a role of like the apostles here and say, okay, but now I'm going to have a healing ministry? Well, the answer is no. And, and this is, this is uh, you know, some people would say yes to this. And you know the people, that, some of the people I'm talking about that would uh, claim to have a healing ministry. My, my point is this, is that why don't we do this is the reason why is because we have to remember what the reason was in Acts 3. The reason why he did this in Acts 3 was not just to show, okay, this is how it's always going to be. This was to show that as the message was going out after Jesus just weeks prior had, or just, just a few days at this point had ascended to heaven, that there was going to be a continuation of his transforming power on earth. But he was going to work it in ways that, uh, and through people. But it wasn't always going to be in the exact same way. But here was something that he was showing to authenticate Jesus' message. Because you've got to remember, not all the crippled people were healed, right? Not all the lame people could walk. Not all the blind could be seen, could see. Jesus, even when he was on earth, he didn't heal everybody. There was, there was far more people that he didn't heal than he did heal. The apostles here, there was far many people. That, do you think this lame man was the only beggar at the gate? Do you think he was the only one asking for alms? But yet we only have the account of him being healed. Why? Because the point wasn't to heal everybody. That's not the point. The point was to authenticate the work of Jesus and to give some anticipation of what is to come. Um. John 30, John 20 speaks to this. John, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the reason for this inclusion of the miracle is not so that we try to imitate the miracle, but it's so that we believe in the God of the miracle, that we see his work authenticated. Um, and it seems that those, even the people who uh, were equipped to, for this time to heal, someone like Peter and John, later on Paul, we're going to see him do some healings and things like that. It seems that over time, that waned and went away, showing that that wasn't the purpose. The purpose was to show that the message was true while it was being established. Uh, a couple examples of that we think of, of of Peter after this in his letters when he's writing to pastors and things like that when he's writing and even a, a pastoral word he gives to there in the two letters that he writes at the end of the New Testament he doesn't mention anything about us having a healing ministry and we don't really see anything him doing that. Even the Apostle Paul, who I mentioned he is going to do some healings in Acts, uh, later on when he's writing in Philippians, he's going to talk about his friend Epaphroditus, and he says he was sick, and he was sick nigh to death, but the Lord had mercy on him. And, 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 but Paul didn't move to heal him. 
Why not? John, who was here in this story here, when he's writing his epistle of 3 John 2, he tells people to pray for the health of other people. He doesn't, he doesn't say, bring him to me, I'll heal him. And so it seems like this healing ministry took a nosedive after this section here. And the reason why is because the purpose of it wasn't to heal everyone on this earth. The purpose was to authenticate the work of Christ. And so I hope that I, I felt like I needed to spend some extra time on that, nailing that down. But I don't want you to feel like we're getting second best. So if we, if we don't get these apostolic experiences and these great healings, what do we get? And is it second best? Well, no. The answer is we get something far better than that. And we get this right here. We get the Word of God. You see, Peter, who does this healing here in this text, he's going to say in his letter in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says that we have a more sure word of prophecy. He says that, that, that they experienced all these things, but yet the word of God that was being codified, it was being developed here, that it was more sure. And the reason why is because memories fade over time, right? And, and, uh, and experiences, they, they can grow, grow dim in our minds over time. And, 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 and you have to be in that spot to experience it. I mean, I mean think about it. I mean, you know, this guy, uh, someone was there when the lame man jumped up and he was amazed. And so he goes home and he starts telling people what happened. He said, man, you should have been there. You should have been at the temple today because when I was there, you remember that guy that was always there? Remember he's always there? Yeah, you know, you remember him sitting there? Yeah, well, well guess what? He's running around right now. And the people say, what? are you sure? You sure it's that guy? Are you sure it's the same guy? Maybe it looked like him. It's like, no, same guy still smells, but yeah, same guy. Now he's just jumping around right now. Yeah, I mean, so the experience it would be different. It would be doubting. You would doubt the experience. And even over time, they tend to wane. But when we have the word of God, we can go back to this. It, this, it, this transcends culture. It's, it transcends time. It, we can take it anywhere. And so this is one of the reasons why we have something better. One more story to prove this, and then I need to move on. But and just so you know, the first, the first point is much longer than the second two. So you can breathe a sigh of relief here. But the point is, this, is that, the, remember Jesus told a story about a rich man and Lazarus. And and uh, they both died one day, and Lazarus was a beggar, and, and so he goes, and, and, and the rich man, he had everything, and he was uh, uh, pretty proud and arrogant and stuff, but they both die, and so they go to the, the, the scripture referring to as, uh, as Hades there, and so we had, we had the, the, the rich man that went to the, uh, a place of punishment, and we had uh, Lazarus that went to paradise with Abraham, and, um, and in this story that Jesus is telling, uh, the rich man can see uh, Abraham and can see Lazarus, right? And so what does he ask him to do? I mean, he's been in torments and he's going through all sorts of uh, difficult times. And, and he, says, he says, hey, listen, uh, uh, go uh, send Lazarus, okay? Raise him from the dead and send him back because I've got brothers that I don't want coming to this place, okay? So, so I, I want you to send Lazarus so that they will believe him. Okay, so the implication is, is that if someone were to rise up from the grave and then go to him, they would believe whatever he says, okay? Interesting what Abraham says in response. Abraham responds, and he says, listen, they have Moses and the prophets. Talking about the Old Testament scriptures. He says, they have that. He says, if they're not going to listen to that, they're not going to listen to someone rising from the dead. That is a powerful statement by Abraham. That, that, that the word of God is much more potent than someone rising miraculously from the dead. And so 
while we don't have these things like Acts 3, we have something better. And so by implications, what are we doing with it? Are we availing ourselves to the scriptures? I mean, how many copies of the scriptures do you have in your home? Are we availing ourselves to it, right? And so this is what we're supposed to be doing here. And so these are uh, uh, the reason why Luke was including this. And so if I was going to make an application point, it would be this. You can follow Jesus with certainty. Don't hedge your bets. Don't hold back. Go all in, okay? Look at this reference here. Look at this story and see that this is yet another proof that following Jesus is what we're supposed to do, right? His message has been authenticated. Let me illustrate it further before I move on to the, quickly for the last two points. Christianity has changed the world. It really has. Um, there's been so many positive impacts on society because of Christianity. A lot of times right now, people want to point out the negatives of religion it has, and, and sure, people have done terrible things in the name of Christ, in the name of Christianity. I don't deny that. But that is not, they were not following what the Scripture said when they did that. Just because they do it in the name of something doesn't mean that that's what they should have been doing. But if you look at those who are following Christ and you look at those who have given their lives to Christ, you look at the impact that they have had on society, it's astounding. You know, in ancient ancient cultures, uh, a wife was simply the property of her husband. Aristotle, he's the one who said that a woman was somewhere between a free man and a slave. Didn't know where, she was just kind of there, right? According to, uh, 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 when we look at uh, uh, history, according to history, we see what, what, uh, what uh, Christianity has done to elevate women in society. Um, it was extremely common in the Greco-Roman world to, to throw out female babies when they were born. And Christians, they would rescue them from the trash heaps, literally, because these babies were not wanted, but yet they put a stop to infanticide. Uh, because of the, the, uh, the church forbade its members to do these things as well. And, the, and also in the Greco-Roman uh, society, they saw no value in unmarried women. And therefore, uh, widows, they had, it, was, it was a terrible lot in life if you became a widow in this society. Yet Christianity was the first one not to force widows to, to marry. They supported them financially. We see this in the New Testament. They honored them within the community. Um, Pagan widows, they lost all control of their husband's estate when they remarried, but the church allowed widows to maintain their husband's estate. Christians did not believe in cohabitation, so if a Christian man wanted to live with a woman, he had to marry her. And this gave women far greater security. And so the pagan double standard of allowing married men to have extramarital affairs and mistresses was forbidden. And so in all these ways, the Christian, the, the Christian women, they were treated much better in society because of the impact of Christianity. Christianity has established hospitals and schools and infused concepts of liberty, justice, and equity, and equality in government. Uh, science. Christianity has had a huge impact in science. In fact, you know, other religions, uh, world religions, express a worldview of fatalism. That means everything is just, just by chance and fatalistic and, or illusion that the physical world is just an illusion. This is what these other major religions teach. But science could not have come out of those world religions of fatalism or illusion. Christianity is based on the notion that there exists a rational God who is the source of rational truth. And so 
This gives the, uh, uh, the rise of the, uh, the, the possibility for scientific laws because it comes from a rational God. And so we see this, and, and this is further proved by, by these early major scientists. They all had a Christian worldview. I'm talking about uh, 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 Kepler, Boyle, Pascal, Pasteur, Newton. All these guys would, would assign a Christian worldview, would ascribe to a Christian worldview. And so again, I go back to this point that you can have certainty in your faith, Okay. Our Christianity is under attack, and it's almost becoming that you're kind of weird if you believe in this stuff. But I'm telling you that I'm standing with Peter, I'm standing with John here, and saying that Jesus' work has been authenticated, and it's continued to be authenticated. And so you can have complete, utter certainty in following Jesus Christ. So I spent most of my time there this morning, and that's by design, because I feel like that was a major point for Luke to include in here. So let me encourage you. Follow Christ with, 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 with no holds back. Don't, don't, don't hold anything back. He's worth it. And he's proven that over and over again. But there was another reason I mentioned, and that was that he wanted to show what transformed Christian living looked like in the first century. Um, and we see this illustrated in several different ways here. Um, every aspect of life was affected by this. Uh, the believers here, they're transformed. We saw this in the end of chapter 2. Uh, Michael alluded to this last week of how that they were selling possessions. They were sharing things. They were attending the temple daily. They were breaking bread. They were uh, encouraging each other. They were meeting each other's needs. There was formal worship. There was informal worship. There was formal gatherings. There was informal gatherings. There was this a beautiful change. And we see this illustrated here. There was compassion and mercy and generosity being shown to the insiders, which we see at the end of chapter 2, of them taking care of each other. But then in chapter 3, we see them showing generosity and compassion to those who are not in the church yet with the lame man, right? And so we see that there's, there's no uh, 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 favoritism here. And James is later on going to talk about that, not showing favoritism. And, and we see this is the impact Christianity has in, in, in transforming. Jesus changes every aspect of life. And so we see the believer's transformation. Of course, we've already talked about the lame man's transformation here. I mean, I told you this man was over 40 years old. But look, look, and this wasn't just something that just happened. Like, you know, when, when, when Peter and John went to him, they didn't, they didn't say to him, you know, okay, you know, I don't have any silver or gold. And parenthetically, they may be because they've been so generous in chapter two. That's the reason why they have any money. I don't know. But he said, we don't have any money. But here's what we're going to do for you. I know this guy, and he can help you out. If you go see him, he's a great doctor, okay? He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna fix you up, okay? This is brand new therapy. Here's some pills to take. That's not what they say. I mean, he has complete transformation immediately. The man has never walked before. Never. He's over 40 years old. Never taken a step. And it's not like he has to, to get a cane and go to physical therapy and rehab. None of that happens. He gets up and walks. He leaps this complete transformation. This is what Jesus does, okay? It's an amazing thing. And in verse 16, I think it is, uh, yes, verse 16, notice how he's described in perfect health. Did you pick up on that? Perfect health. That's what Jesus did for this man. So he was completely transformed. 
And so God has a way of doing that. He has a way of changing. I, I can't promise that all of our physical needs are going to be uh, 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 taken away. In fact, that brings up a question I want to ask is, is, what about healing? Why don't I get healed? Maybe some of you are thinking about it. Maybe some of you are watching at home. And you're thinking, yeah, it's all fine and good, but I've been struggling, Jeremy. I've been struggling with this physical need for years. How come I don't get healed? Maybe someone's here today and you're saying, I, where's my healing? Well, here's how I would answer that, is you will. If you follow Jesus, you will be healed. It may not be in this life, but it will definitely be in the next life. This perfect health that verse 16 talks about, that's, that's your experience. That will be your experience if you follow Christ. Maybe not in this life. I can't promise you that, and nor will I. But what I will promise you is that Jesus will come back and set all things right. And so maybe, you know, um, this is this anticipation part. We talked about authentication. This is the anticipation part. But maybe some of you are thinking, well, I'm not sick. You know, this doesn't have any relevance to me. My response to that is, you will be. <laughs> you know, the Bible says we're wasting away, Right? The Bible says our bodies are wasting away. And you're going to, yeah, I, 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 I experience some of this now. I know I'm relatively young, right? Okay. But I, I'm over 40 now, okay? And if I pick up a basketball and I go on the basketball court, my mind has grand ideas of what I can do, right? I think back, you know, when I was in high school, I think back, you know, okay, I could do this. And, that. and then when I start to play, my body says, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, like, what, what, what are you thinking, right? And I'm just in the beginning stages of this. Some of you right now, you're listening to me going, oh, you just wait, boy. <laughs> you just wait, <laughs> right? Um, you know, I, I get it. And so we will feel these things. Our bodies are wasting away. And this, looking at this text here as an encouragement is saying, okay, what this lame man experienced, I will experience one day because of the power of Jesus Christ. If not physically, spiritually as well, we're born dead and we need that healing power of Jesus. And so the point is this, what did transformed Christian living look like in the first century? It looked like that people's lives were radically changed. I want to give one more illustration. I've talked about believers. I've talked about this layman, but there's one other person that I want to mention here. And that's the preacher. That's the speaker in the text, Peter. Let, let me draw your attention to this text. Look at verse 13 and 14, Okay. Is there any word, there's a word that's repeated once, it's in once in 13, once in 14. Is there any word that, that the word that's repeated, does that strike you as interesting there, considering who spoke it? I'm talking about the word denied. Remember who's speaking this? It's Peter. What is Peter known for? He's known for he denied Jesus three times. And yet, he's here preaching, saying, hey, you denied him. Don't do that. On one hand, you could call him hypocritical, but we know that that's not the right accusation. The right thing to, to lay on, the right charge to lay on him is that he's been transformed. 
He's been utterly transformed that he is completely bold now for Jesus Christ. The one who had, had cowered in fear, the one who had denied Christ. And Jesus had told me when he said he wouldn't, and yet he did this one. Now he's looking at, he's pointing and saying, don't do this. He said, you did that and you can have the same restoration, the same transformation that I have had. And he tells them how. He tells them how and, and he says that this is that something that, that it's all about Jesus. And, and notice the deflection here is, is he says, why are you looking at us? Why are you looking at us as if we are the ones who have uh, 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 done this? He says, Jesus has done this in the name of Jesus. He doesn't take credit for himself. He doesn't say that he has power to do this. He says, it's Jesus that's done this. And Jesus chose to do this. This is a reminder of John the Baptist in uh, John chapter 3, verse 30. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And so this transforming power that Jesus has done is, uh, to Peter is that he is completely changed man because of Jesus Christ. You know, when Christianity, following Christianity, following Christ, it will transform every aspect. We will become more generous. We will become more kind. There will be joy. There will be awe. There will be amazement. And if you say, man, you're talking about these things, but they're not really in my life, then you've got to go back and look at your relationship with Christ. Because this is how God has designed us to change. I'm not saying we're going to be like this every second of every day. We have low moments, but God brings us back. And we're going to get to the, the answer to that as I conclude this. But the point is this, is that Christianity following Jesus Christ should transform every aspect of our lives. There's a Roman emperor, Julian, who he was known for several letters. He didn't rule very long, but he was particularly irritated with the Christians. Uh, this is about uh, the fourth century. And, and this is what he had to say when he was writing to one of his generals about uh, Christians. He says, you know, it's disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, or the impious Galileans, that was what he was referring to the Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. He says, these Christians are living in such a way that no one's coming to the government for help. No one's coming to us and no one's depending upon us. This is disgraceful. They were losing their power base because of these Christians because they have been transformed by the, Christ, by the story of Jesus Christ and by the truths of Jesus Christ. That's what God wants for us is to transform our lives so that every part of our lives is touched. We have joy. We love one another. We have peace. We have unity. We, we major on the major things, and we, we, we overlook the minor offenses, those type of things. And so our lives should be characterized by wonder, awe, amazement, worship, joy, compassion, kindness, considering of other people. That's what transformation looks like, and it goes both ways, privately to God and towards other people. I got I to gotta land this plane, and so let me just mention this real quickly here. The importance of repentance and faith. I have, to, I have to talk about this just for a minute because this is the answer of repentance and faith here. This is how we have uh, the basis of a transforming life. And so let me just say this, and I'm, I'm, I'm cutting things on the fly here. So um, what does repentance and faith look like? It, it, it's really the two sides to the same coin. Okay, think about the analogy of a coin. You have repentance on one side, you have faith on the other side. They're, they're, you can't have one without the other. In fact, repentance is us turning. That's what the word means to turn. 
It's us turning from sin, okay? That's what repentance is, is we, we, we turn away from sin, where faith is the turn towards God, okay? So think about it that way. Repentance is when we turn away from sin. Faith is when we turn towards God. This is the reason why in both messages, in both speeches that we have seen last week in chapter 2, this week in chapter 3, Peter talks about repentance because we cannot have a transformed life life unless we are repentant people. And repentance has this like negative connotation to it and all this, but the point is this, is that it is crucial to our Christian life that we turn from sin and turn towards God. It's a work of grace in our lives that we must look to God for. And so this is what Peter wants to do. He wants to show us that this is so important. And so let me, I, I have to say as well, but what does faithful life look like? Because I've said here that this summary statement here is that we live a faithful life empowered by the Spirit. What does that look like? Does that look like we never doubt God? Does that look like we never have a question? Does that look like we, we always accept things and with no problem? I don't believe so. I believe what it means is that when we do have those low moments, instead of complaining to other people about it, we run to God with those concerns. And think of Job. He went to God with those concerns. And this is the reason why God had that conversation with him. He says, okay, now I had heard about you, but now I see you, Job said above God. Because when he was complaining, when he was uh, uh, frustrated with life, he went to God with those. He didn't go to other people. So that's what a faithful life looks like. And so I'll say this, is that the church is called to confidently follow the apostles' examples of living transformed, repentant, and faithful lives that are empowered by the Spirit. So repent and turn to God. No doubt there's someone here that's not a Christian, whether you're watching online, you're in the room or in the gym, that, that, that maybe you think you're a Christian, but you're not. You've, you've not turned to God. You've not asked him to forgive you of your sins. You don't see that your sins are a huge separation between you and God and that you need his forgiveness. The Bible says, I, I, I'll just tell you what Peter says, repent and turn to God and he will forgive you. Let me tell you, when, when you teach, for those of you who are teachers, particularly children, don't, don't miss this important part of the gospel message. Um, I, I remember witnessing a, a, a teacher, uh, a young, uh, very young children, we're talking like four-year-olds, um, and she, uh, she called me in her classroom, uh, and she said, hey, Pastor Jeremy, uh, I have wonderful news to share. And I said, what's that? And she said, every student just asked Jesus to save them. And I said, oh, what happened? And she says, well, one person asked how they can go to heaven. And I said, well, you have to pray and ask God to take you to heaven. And so I asked, how many of you want to go to heaven when you die? And they all raised their hands. And so I said, well, just pray this prayer. Lord, please take me to heaven when I die. And they did. And now they're going to heaven. Isn't that wonderful? I said, it's always a wonderful thing when God saves someone. Now, the reason why I was very caught off guard was because I'm not going to say that those kids were and weren't saved. That's between them and God. But my point is this, is that there was a lot missing there. There was a lot missing there. When we're talking to children about following God, let's make sure that we, we, they understand what sin is and why we need to be saved and why that repentance is crucial to living a transformed life. It's not about just adding something to our lives and just saying, okay, uh, yeah, I'll believe that. I'll believe that intellectual fact about Jesus. The demons believe that, James says. 
But the point is, is that we have to live repentant life. And that's not a life of, you know, hating ourselves and things like that. No, it's a life of understanding our sin that separates from God and turning to him and asking him for forgiveness. So uh, confidently follow Jesus. Allow the Spirit to press you in every area of life and allow him to transform you. I hope that this study of this text has been helpful in that impressing us towards these things, the importance of repentance, the importance of faithful living, and allowing the Spirit of God to transform us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we've been able to look at this text. We have one more song to sing and worship of you. I pray that it's helpful. I pray that, um, uh, I pray that what we have talked about in terms of from Acts 3, I pray that uh, we would see you transform us, transform our church. We, we need to be uh, constantly pushed to follow you in and to uh, repent of our sins. This is not something we just do once. And, and you're not a God like, with a baseball bat waiting to beat us over the head. Rather, no, you're saying, just ask for forgiveness and I'll forgive you, but see that you've sinned against me. And um, then change us. So help us to learn and, and grow. As we sing this final song, Lord, I pray that you would be pleased with our, our, our singing. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Let's stand together.